Hello Internet, this is Colin Taylor, pastor at Trinity Church Woodcroft. Uh, another home recording of this sermon. We On this Sunday, we arrived at church, setting up as normal, all good, until there was a big power outage of the whole block. So I'm recording for you this, you, this for you at home. It's on Genesis chapter 40 and 41, second in our series looking at Joseph, and it's called Dreamed Up. So here we go. What difference can I make in the world? Uh, our daughter's decided she wants, she's eight years old, decided she wants to be a conservationist. And she keeps, she's right on to us about not using plastic. You know, you feel guilty using a straw these days, don't you? And that's good, I suppose. Her whole generation will grow up with a better understanding that plastic is around for a long time. But really, what difference can I, one person, make about plastic in the oceans, about the climate crisis, about all the poverty and wars and injustice in the world. Uh, I heard a comedian talking the other day about how when you, you know, when you go in the toilet and try and use a hand dryer and it's not working, it makes you look like a really rubbish magician just standing there waving your hands about. Well, that can be how our efforts to make the world a better place can feel, can't it? And that's just with secular issues that everyone cares about. We can feel even more useless making a difference for God's kingdom, can't we? I wonder how Joseph was feeling as he languished in prison for all those years. I bet he didn't feel, despite the dreams he'd had, I bet he didn't feel like he was going to make much of a difference in the world. And yet his story will see him used by God to save Egypt, save his family and the whole region, keeping God's ultimate plan to bless the whole world on track. So three headings today, uh, dreamed in and out, Joseph dreamed in and out of prison, dreamed up, and one man. So first up, Joseph is dreamed in and out. In a round of, roundabout way, dreams have landed Joseph in prison. Yet it's dreams that will take him from prison to the palace. Last week, uh, we left Joseph going down to slavery in Egypt. Uh, his brothers going down to betrayal and deception, and Jacob going down into endless grief. Chapter 38 is about Judah, uh, and all says it's not one for kids' church, okay? Chapter 39, we're back to Joseph, and he serves Potiphar, captain of the guard. Um, and what's clear is that God is really with Joseph, that God is good to those who are good to Joseph. And in that chapter, we see happening just in that household, happening what God promised Abraham back in chapter 12 of Genesis. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Joseph's doing really well, but Potiphar's wife takes a shine to him. And in contrast to Judah, Joseph remains faithful to God, doing the right thing spurning her affections. She falsely accuses him of rape. And it's a sign of the favour that uh, Joseph's built up with Potiphar and his household that he's not executed as he would normally be, but put in prison. Still, we know this isn't the end. Chapter 39, verse 21, it says, The Lord was with Joseph. He showed him kindness and granted him favour in the eyes of the prison warden. And Joseph ends up in charge of the other prisoners. Amongst them are two of Pharaoh's servants, his cupbearer 
and his baker. Each have had troubling dreams. And it turns out that God has not only gifted Joseph with dreams of his own, but also with the ability to interpret the dreams of others. Verse 6 of chapter 40. When Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. So he asked Pharaoh's officials, who were in custody with him in his master's house, Why do you look so sad today? We both had dreams, they answered, but there is no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. And so he interprets their dreams. The cupbearer, he'll be in the clear, back in Pharaoh's service in three days. And Joseph urges him to remember him. Put a good word in for me with Pharaoh. For the baker, it's bad news. Well, I don't know what he'd give them Pharaoh for morning tea, but for him, Joseph says, within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head and impale your body on a pole and the birds will eat away your flesh. And sure enough, it all happens just as Joseph said. But the cupbearer forgets all about him. There are a couple of contrasts we can take away from chapter 40. The contrast between Joseph and Jacob's reaction to suffering and the contrast between Egypt's man-god Pharaoh and Joseph's true god. So first of all, the contrast between Joseph and his dad Jacob. See, Jacob, upon hearing of Joseph's apparent death, decided that that was it. Life was over. And apparently without a thought for the rest of his family, he gave himself over to grieving for the rest of his life. Joseph, on the other hand, hasn't moped about. He's done his best with the circumstances and personality God has given him in life, finding favour in Potiphar's house and even in prison. So unlike Jacob, who's oblivious to everyone's feelings, Joseph sensitively recognises that something's up with the baker and the cupbearer after their dreams. You know, Joseph does feel grief to be where he is. We see that in verse 15. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I've done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. But Joseph still seems to have a solid inward stability in trusting God which means he looks beyond himself and he's confident to interpret the dreams, doing what he can in God's service. So that's the contrast between Joseph and Jacob. And second, see how fickle and cruel Pharaoh is in wielding his power, throwing people into prison because they've offended him. Their fate, be it restoration or impilation, seemingly arbitrary at Pharaoh's whim. He decides if their head is lifted up or lifted off. Now contrast that with the compassion and faithfulness of God. Joseph finds blessing, success, even in slavery, even in prison. And his brothers, who deserve prison or worse, will be rescued, saved and forgiven, restored by the very one they tried to harm. So if you find yourself someone who is doubting God or even against God, I just want to ask you, is it the same God of the Bible that we're talking about? Because I think often we can import ideas from human rulers or powers into our idea of who God is. But God isn't a 
pathetic old man who has run out of ideas, like the Wizard of Oz or somebody in a Philip Pullman novel. And God isn't a fickle, vindictive, self-centred king like Pharaoh. No, God is all-powerful. He's completely just and fair. And he's generous in his grace to us. God's purposes and power are unhindered by anything Joseph's brothers or Potiphar's wife or Pharaoh or anyone else can do. Pharaoh is about to be brought down to size by a bad night's sleep. God's sovereign rule has uh, worked seemingly godless events to be God things, to work in the circumstances to make sure Joseph is, our next heading, dreamed up, dreamed up. Bringing Joseph and Pharaoh together at exactly the right time for one man to make a big difference. It's two years later. Pharaoh is the highest human power known to man. The all-powerful ruler of everything he knows. Until, of course, he isn't. Until he himself is plagued by dreams. The first about seven sleek, fat cows coming up out of the Nile, followed by seven of the scrawniest, ugliest, leanest cows Pharaoh had ever seen. The thin cows ate the fat cows, and then, verse 21, a nice detail, no one could tell they had done so. They looked just as ugly as before. Then another dream. Seven full and good heads of corn, swallowed up by seven thin, withered, scorched heads of corn. So troubled, Pharaoh sends for his wise men and magicians, the best minds in Egypt, but they can't interpret. Finally, at last, that dopey cupbearer, probably because Pharaoh is getting upset, and so he once again has flesh in the game, finally remembers Joseph. Joseph is sent for and made to look Egyptian enough for Pharaoh's presence. Shaving, which is not something Hebrews did, a shave and a change of clothes. Which raises the question, will Joseph stay faithful to God or will he go full Egyptian and compromise to win Pharaoh's favour? Well, let's pick it up in verse 15 of chapter 41. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream and no one can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Here's Joseph's golden ticket. His literal get out of jail free card. What's he going to say? Verse 16. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Joseph refuses to take the credit for the help he is about to give. He points instead to God who has gifted him the ability. Joseph could have promoted himself here, given himself a better chance of winning Pharaoh's favour. But perhaps Joseph has his own dreams in mind. Perhaps he remembers the, the favour he's enjoyed throughout the adversity. Or maybe it just never occurs to Joseph to take the credit for God's work in him. He says, it's not me helping you, it's God. So there's three things to draw out about Joseph in this section. Um, true humility, that he's an action man, 
and Scars Not Chips. True Humility, Action Man, Scars Not Chips. So first up, True Humility. Joseph is a great example to us of true humility. True humility knows that any gifting or talent we have is a spiritual gift from God, inasmuch as it's, we use it in God's service. And as we use our gifts and who God's made us to be, we've got nothing to boast about and nothing to be jealous of. Because what we have is what God has given us, and all credit goes to him. In 1 Corinthians 12 it says, There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them, and in everyone, it is the same God at work. So true humility is not you know, putting yourself down all the time, saying, oh, I'm rubbish at that. But true humility is bigging up, magnifying God. True humility is having supreme confidence, not in ourselves, but in God. Joseph has got a sort of inner stability and peace because of his trust in God. In God sorry. And that's just from what he knows from, from his family and from his own lived experience. Oh, we've got that and we've got the Bible, we've got God's word. And thousands of tales of generosity, of his generosity, love, grace and faithfulness and power. All of that to draw our confidence from. And how we go about sharing Jesus depends on how much of this true humility we have. See, if we lack humility, we'll start thinking that we are somehow more deserving of our salvation. And start looking down on people who are not saved. But if we know everything that is good about us, including our faith in Jesus, is only there by God's grace, we will be patient and respectful and understanding in our approach to people's lostness if they don't know Jesus as their king. And if we're a bit wobbly on whether the good news about Jesus is true or all we need, then we'll be a bit wobbly in sharing it. But if we're confident in our salvation, convinced it is the the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Our witness will have an authenticity and authority like Joseph's. So Joseph has true humility and he's an action man. So even though Joseph knows that God is in total control, he acts in light of that. We don't find in Joseph anything of just let go and let God. God's in control, so I just need to step back, do nothing and let him do his thing. It is true that God is not dependent on us for anything. And yet, he makes us, and in this case, in particular Joseph, central to his plans. Joseph seems to take it as read that God's still got a part for him to play in all this. And his response to God's sovereignty is to spring into action in light of his trust that God is in control. Joseph comes up with a plan of taxing a fifth of the harvest in the seven years of plenty and reserving it for the years of famine. Because God is a relational God who gives us the privilege of joining in his mission. In Joseph's case, it's to save his family and Egypt and all that region so that his family can go on to bless the whole world through Jesus. In our case, we have the privilege of joining in the mission of making and growing disciples of Jesus. See, God has got those he's gathering to himself in Woodcroft and beyond. 
and nothing will thwart his plans to save them. But that doesn't mean that we don't do anything to bother about them. No, what we do is we, well, we've planted a church and we want ourselves to go on and plant more churches because Jesus commissions us, Jesus co-missions us to go and make disciples. And we can do that confident that we'll do our thing and he will do the heart changing and the saving. So true humility is an action man and he's got scars, not chips. Have you ever met someone with a, ch- a chip on their shoulder? I remember being out with mates from school and uh, a friend of a friend was there and he had a real um, gr- sense, grudge and a sense of victimhood. He was convinced we were sort of posh middle class lads, which is totally wrong. And he was really grumpy about it. Think about poor Joseph. He could very easily have chosen to define himself as a victim. Betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery. All his hard work in Potiphar's house. All his respect ruined in an instant by a false accusation. Forgotten in prison by the one bloke who could have got him out. And yet Joseph doesn't unduly dwell on the difficulties of his past. Now eventually we read Joseph has two children and the names he gives his children give us an insight into what he's thinking and feeling. Verse 51. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim and said, It is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. God has made me. See, Joseph can look back on his life this far, the highs and the deep, deep lows, and say it's been the making of him. All of it. His bad bad experiences, they're not nothing. They've scarred him but they've not embittered him towards God or or towards mankind. Joseph could have stayed psychologically in the pit where his brothers left him, brooding against his mistreatment. Instead, he focuses on what God wants to do through him, prepared as he has been by all of it, good and bad. Read in Romans chapter 5. We also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So let's learn from Joseph's humility. He's joining in God's mission. He's trusting God, making him who he needs to be to carry out his purposes. God used this one man to massive effect. Just imagine what he can do with a whole church of his servants. Again, what we're doing here in this section is getting morals from the story. Lessons we can learn from Joseph's example. And that's a completely legitimate thing to do. And we'd be daft not to learn from Joseph's lessons. But again, we mustn't miss the big picture of the story, the big idea of what... um, the writer of Genesis wants to get across to us about God being sovereign and sovereignly acting through one man. That's our last heading, one man.
Joseph's plan seems good to Pharaoh and his officials. I mean, Joseph's belief in one single creator God is a million miles away from Pharaoh's pagan belief system. And yet Pharaoh recognises God at work in Joseph. And that's good enough for him to put him in charge of the whole country, with only Pharaoh himself superior. So Joseph is once again in fine clothes, the signet ring of the king on his finger, people bowing before him. And the plan works, such that the grain was like, verse 40, was like the sand of the sea and so much of it. And it's, this is all language deliberately showing us that God is beginning to fulfil his promise to Abram of blessing and fruitfulness for his family and, and for blessing of the nations through them. God has worked out his plan. He needed Joseph in prison. He needed the cupbearer to forget him until just the right time. Uh, and God's plan goes right back to the start of time. All creation is being made for this purpose, for God to make his family, to gather a family to himself. So right now in his big picture, that means getting this chosen family of Joseph and Jacob through a famine. It means reuniting this broken family and healing hearts, as we'll come to next time. But this is just one example of how God works all through history. And it all comes to a head in one man, Jesus. Jesus, who like Joseph, was mistreated, imprisoned, glorified. Who knows the future of both individuals and of the whole nation. See, Pharaoh, Joseph's family, the nations, they could all be rescued by coming to one man, Joseph. Jesus has all the treasures of blessing of heaven for us. Free forgiveness, being made right with God, if we come to him for rescue. Blessing the whole world through this one man, from this one family. This was always God's plan. Jesus has got everything you need. Trust yourself to him. So let's remind ourselves what we've seen and see where we're headed. We saw that Jacob disappeared into his own grief, but Joseph looks beyond himself, ready to exercise the gifts that God has given him to help others. We've seen that where human rulers can be fickle and cruel, God is compassionate, full of grace and all-powerful. We looked at the example of Joseph's true humility, always pointing to God with a deep conviction in God's ability to save. We looked at how the appropriate response to God's commentary is, is not to throw our hands up and say, let go, let God, but to throw ourselves into joining in his plans. We looked at how we can avoid bitterness and chips on our shoulder by looking back at all our past life experience, good and bad, and recognise it as God making us. And we've seen how Joseph is a type, one who points to Jesus, the one man through whom all the world can be blessed, saved from our sin, glorifying God as we're rescued by him. What difference can one person make? Not much. But God can do anything and it pleases him and it glorifies him to work through us as we live for Jesus. Joseph has prevailed. He survived the pit, he survived prison, 
and now he's Pharaoh's right-hand man. Married into Egyptian aristocracy, culturally, he's full-blown full Egyptian. People bowing down to him in the street, rich beyond measure. So Joseph, the tension now is, Joseph has stayed faithful to God through the tough times. Will he remain faithful to God through the good times? Thanks for listening.